creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy Business Show brought to you by Discovery Business Insurance. In this episode, we're getting legal. In studio, I'm sitting with the very amazing Luando Trasso, attorney and constitutional law expert who will be speaking about ethics in business and the very dapper Graham Wilson, who's a legal advisor to many South African startups. Luando, welcome to the Healthy Business Show. It's so good to see you again. Good to see you, Fred. I, um, I'm going to get into quite a few questions about uh, law and the framework of law and the understanding of law in this uh, in this country. However, I want to quickly just get into a little bit of you know where it all began for you uh, as a young lawyer, or at least even before then. What what got you into law and what interested you in the beginning? And maybe go into the sort of arc of your career right mm. in those early days. What a you know. Usually when I answer this question, I'm always nervous because it sounds very frivolous and superficial how I came into law because it's not some, you know, uh, profound story <laughs> of being inspired by Oliver Tambo and Nelson Mandela and all of that. It's uh, O.J. Simpson. Oh, wow. That's, okay. how, um, that's what inspired me to be a lawyer. I mean, I was like quite young at the time when the trial was on TV. Sure, we were all fascinated by that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it caught my attention and um, maybe my fascination was a little bit different outside of the who done it kind of thing. Sure. Of the dead ex-wife and boyfriend and all of that. But what my eye focused on when I watched the trial was uh, Marsha Clark. Okay. I had realized in that moment, I think I was 12 when I was watching it, that uh, I had never seen a woman represented that way on TV. And I think sitting down, you know, I was in primary school, sitting down and and switching on the television, thinking I'm going to see what I usually see, you know, women playing the support and, you know, the damsel in distress and all of that. And now I'm watching this real life trial where this woman is commanding the room and she's being so courageous under so much pressure. I think looking back on it, I make sense of why that trial caught my attention. It's because of representation. I'd never seen a real life woman, you know, a prosecutor in that way before. So it sort of expanded my imagination as to what I could be in life. And because of that, I did a whole school project and I cut it out of a newspaper and I said, whatever this woman does. And because I was very shy at the time, you know, I admired that she had a voice and the way she was using her voice. I'm like, this is who I want to be when I grow up. And uh, funny enough, last year I wrote about it. And I think she has a Google alert on herself because she picked up the article and she tweeted about it and she shouted (laughs) me out. And that I was is like, so hey, cool. my childhood hero knows yeah. that I exist. So that was pretty cool. That obviously led you to to getting stuck into possibly and arguably a far more complex scenario, which which is the South African legal framework. And I mean, how I mean, was that for you in terms of that, that arc? I love looking back that in 1995, I mean, grade six and I'm sort of stuck in this world of this trial all the way on the other side you know in LA and right here in this country I didn't know that uh, Mandela was you know starting a new court you know the constitutional court we had just gone through our own uh, transition from apartheid to democracy in 1995 we were just a year old you know so trying to reimagine what our new democracy is going to look and feel like its personality and all of that and having Mandela sort of have this idea of a constitutional court, knowing that, 
you know, the court system up until then had been so tainted under apartheid that it couldn't be credibly the custodian of this new constitution. The constitution didn't exist in 1995. It was still being drafted. We had an interim constitution. So it's sort of looking at where I was in my life while these big moments were happening and not being entirely aware, knowing something big is happening. Like, you remember, I am an African, the speech. I remember how I walked into school the day after that speech. I felt like my eyes had been open. I'm like, wow. I'd never heard someone frame being an African in this way. And that's the kind of speech that makes sense, you know, years and years after you hear it. It's it's still unpacking itself in in my mind. It's a dream, right? Yeah, Yeah, like you you can't just read that speech and you say, you've got it. I I refer to it um, over and over again. And to know that when the constitution was adopted, that's how Tabumbeke responded to the moment. And for me, knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer, I think what was happening in South Africa at the time really shaped the kind of lawyer I wanted to be. Hence, I wasn't a prosecutor like Marsha Clark. You know, I ended up in, in, in private law and my dream was actually to do constitutional law, which was a new kind of law. So during that that time, mm. in terms of the experiences, were there any experiences that really stood out in terms of your understanding of the business sector and how the business sector was kind of embroiled in this this multifaceted, highly complex environment that we were still evolving on the backdrop mm. of the, the new constitution court and so on. I mean, I'll tell you this, like, you know, you, you go through, you study law and uh, for four years and you do your articles for two years. I did my articles at Morton Rose. And um, during that period, you sort of rotate around different departments uh, in the structure that that firm had is Mm. that you rotate around different departments to kind of see what you want to specialize in. So when I was in varsity, I really enjoyed labor law. right? And it's no coincidence that's where you find a lot of activisms, you know, trade unions in this country are part of the reason that led to the dismantling of apartheid, you know, uh, workers. And I think you have this romantic idea as a law student in terms of the kind of change that you want to bring about. Yeah. But then you also have commercial realities where you want to be, you know, uh, in a certain income bracket and you want to empower yourself and all of that. So you end up in a private law firm, in my case, one of the biggest ones. And you realize that you're not going to always be acting for the worker. You know, doing law at that level is not always about activism and sort of trying to make sense of your role. And I remember having a moment, right, where we were acting for a company and against one of its employees who had stolen something. Whatever he was, he, he had stolen, I think it was like taking home a roll of toilet paper, something like that. And... um you know, having them come in to meet with us as the lawyers of the company and feeling in that moment that this is a little bit over the top considering what he had taken. But (laughs) principle is principle. If your laws within your company say if you steal, and if the labor laws say if you steal, it's dismissible. That's what it is. It doesn't matter if you steal one cent. I remember this man walking in and I could tell that he, he didn't have much and he came in with his hat literally in his hands And we sort of were on the other side in terms of determining his fate. And I was very uncomfortable with that. And I remember saying to my boss that I don't think I could do this, you know. And he told me, isn't it better that 
the company has a, has us, you know, because uh, we considered ourselves to have integrity. So I made sense of acting for big companies from that perspective that mm. if you're a lawyer with integrity, you can always add value in a situation like that. You know, mm. it doesn't have to always be a, a situation of exploitation. So that's how I sort of reconciled in my mind that if I'm not working, you know, for the small guy, that if I'm working for a big company, then I could add some kind of value in that sense. And I think, you know, it's important for businesses to understand what the constitution does for them. I think usually it's seen as something to control public power and not private power. But if you read Section 8, Section 8 is very important in the constitution. It's about the application of the Bill of Rights. And it says that it's not just a horizontal, a vertical application between state and us. There's also a horizontal application application of the Bill of Rights, meaning you as Fred mm. can violate my, my rights as set out in Chapter 2 of the Constitution, just like a company can violate the Bill of Rights of, you know, the citizens of mm. this country. So I think that's important for companies to know, for businesses to know that in Yes, you're bound by the Companies Act and you have to, you know, make sure your uh, affairs are in order in that sense. But also before you even get to the Companies Act, because all laws flow from the highest law in the country, and which is the Constitution. This is the skeleton and the Companies Act and all the other laws that are relevant to you more f are about fleshing it out. So Section 8 says that companies are also bound, private actors are also bound by the Constitution. I'm learning that the stability of this country accountable governance really goes a long way mm. in creating fertile ground for businesses to grow and who is in power is really something that people uh, should care about what the constitution says is what people should care about because at the end of the day it does affect whether we have investments in this country it does affect our growth we've had such slow growth for the last couple of years and it can all be traced back in to the political decisions that well, we take it stems from a national anxiety, I guess. The rules are, are there for a purpose. You need that common understanding of the framework and agreement that that framework is actually powerful. We only operate yeah. within it for us to succeed, right? Just for those of us in terms of, you know, understanding, uh, having such a basic understanding, what is the constitution? Why is it important for us as entrepreneurs? I always answer this a number of ways. One is a constitution. Always keep in mind that it's a ceasefire document. No one ever goes into a room to draft a constitution in peace times. You know, uh, it's always as a result of a clash. So having this document on the table right now is understanding that South Africa was effectively in a war. And uh, part of the white flag that was waved is this document saying, OK, let's let's, um, you know, put our weapons down and mm. let's build a new country. And um, so I, I would say a constitution is a ceasefire document. But more than that, like. South Africa as a concept didn't exist until the law said it existed in 1910. So a constitution is what makes the country. It's the thing that establishes a country. Just like your business has a constitution, mm. the country has a con constitution. It says what the name of the country is, what the flag is, what the national anthem is, and also what citizens are entitled to and how power is going to be divided amongst the different branches of government and how that power, because of our history, it was important for this constitution to say how we're going to curb power. So there is a focus on curbing power because under apartheid, the government and parliament could effectively do what they wanted to do. So for me, you know, it's a roadmap 
to the vision that we have for this country. So if you want to, you know, if you want a country where black and white people are living side by side, where, you know, the inequality gap has been closed, where we have, uh, you know, optimum investment in this country and growth and thriving businesses and all of that, this document gives you the tools or the structure, the, the best structure and the yeah. best framework on how we get there, right? So I think if you have any questions, you know, people watch the news and they'll tell me, is the president allowed to do this? Is parliament allowed to do this? You know, is the constitutional court allowed to do this? It should be that it's set out in the constitution. It's the first place you go to to get your your answers. There's a an ethos that's embodied by the constitution about how companies should behave, especially in a post-conflict society. You can't just be driven by profits. You also have to be driven by, you know, the well-being not only of your employees, but the entire country, right? So mm. you have to understand the environment in which you exist, that South Africa is not just any other country. It demands on you to actually perform whatever your business activity is, you know, in a way that enables this country to actually realize the human rights that are actually set out. And I think what's really fascinating about that is it just speaks to the long-term impact of the choices that you make. Mm. So I guess what you're revealing to us is mm. how powerful this document actually is and that it's not just a document, that it is a framework that's been provided to us mm -hmm. on the back of so much flagrant abuse of the law, you know, in our history, but now it's given us this new platform, this new framework mm. that, that ultimately, you know, as businesses, we need to operate within and it, it, mm. it, it governs those choices. And obviously the choices that you make have long-term consequences. Mm. So if you suddenly decide as a soft decision, oh, you know, we're not going to provide, you know, the, nece the necessary safe safety masks because mm. that's going to add a couple of million rand to our, our, um, to our expenses, then, then you, you know, let's not do it. Mm. There's this thing within me that I've faced along the way and it's this continual line that, mm. that's in front of you that you're thinking, mm. you know, from things like, Software, you know, <laughs> it's so easy to get software that you should pay for for free. But as a small business, you're trying to keep your costs down. You're doing lean startup and all these these choices that you make. There's always ways you can flout and kind of transgress the law. But it's it doesn't feel like you're breaking the law. I don't think Zuma felt like he was breaking the law either. I always say like people don't think they corrupt. That's corruption. <laughs> it, it's it's kind of the thing of stealing the, the, the toilet paper. The, yeah, and, it, and it was stealing. The principle it, is and there. And the principle is there. And how important is that for us to ingrain with young, starry-eyed, ambitious entrepreneurs? And how important is that for us to adopt, I mean, the moral framework that's been provided by the Constitution? I think it's crucial. I think it's absolutely critical. And I'm not saying it's easy. Because, um, you know, also becoming an entrepreneur myself, I'm learning some of this as I go along without support from other entrepreneurs. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So there's an ignorance of the law, but there's mm. also a philosophy in law that, you know, um, the ignorance of the law doesn't absolve you. I can understand the situation that entrepreneurs are in, but if you don't pay your taxes, if you cut corners, 
Understanding, as my favorite writer says, is different from justification. It doesn't justify the fact that you've—I uh, can understand your personal circumstances, but I could never say it justifies you breaking the law because similarly, then we're creating a precedent, right? And I think then when our politicians are acting out of pocket, they can say that as well. And I don't think it's fair to just hold, you know, political actors to a high standard, but private actors can sort of like cut corners in the way that we're saying now. And knowing that— it's something that we faced with in every part of our lives like when you're stopped by a traffic officer you know it's so easy to just like pay 50 rand to make the whole thing a go yeah. away rather than be susceptible to being fined yeah. a bigger amount the it's like spot fund. You it's a day, just, yeah. such a negotiation yeah. every day but I think it comes back to what kind of a country do you want to live in I always judge the state of our country by how taxi drivers operate you know that's a business they are under immense pressure. They are chasing ridiculous targets and they're willing to risk our lives mm. to, to, to uh, meet those targets. And more than that, I think taxi drivers have discovered that law is meaningless, that I cross a red robot and there are no consequences. You know, so I think they've really stretched the boundaries of the law. And I would say that as taxi drivers can be seen as entrepreneurs, that's what we do. We test the boundaries of the law until it snaps back. And sometimes you have a little bit more room to sort of stre- stretch and stretch until something fatal happens, yeah. Well, especially in the taxi industry. But it's not just taxi drivers. It's your normal motorists who are doing the same thing. So for me, it's like you have to define, do you want to live in mm. a country where people transgress the laws in that way so flagrantly oh. every Again, it's respecting the framework. And and if you, you know, if you want our, our government to behave themselves and not to break the law themselves, then you need to display that same behavior that you want, right? Yeah. Be the change that you want to see. So one thing that I've realized, I mean, if you look at a, any business, right, it's it's pretty much made up of, of marketing, of operations and ad- administration. Mm. So if you look at those three circles and usually, I mean, a healthy company, there should be three equally sized circles. Mm. Most of the time for a, a you know a, an early stage company, mm. it's primarily operations. You know, mm. you're just doing stuff. You mm. you know you you hustling all the time. You're trying mm. to get stuff built. Mm. And the marketing is probably the second biggest circle. And then you've got this tiny little circle of admin, mm. which is like an afterthought because you never have time mm. for it. How important is getting an, a, a real understanding of those legal structures you for need, a young business? You know, you, you need proper governance in place. And I would say that I know a lot of the big law firms that actually, you know, go out of their way to provide services to young entrepreneurs. What are the steps that you would take as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. in Alex who wanted to start adopting the right frameworks as opposed to the temptation just to get going? I would approach a legal clinic, a law clinic. You know, people sort of dismiss law clinics because sometimes they're staffed by law students. But um, I know that some of the law firms have their own law clinics. Like for instance... What is a law clinic? A law clinic is like, it's not... It's not a firm not that a will firm. charge you money. Yeah. It operates on a pro bono basis and um, you have to meet certain requirements to qualify for that pro bono service. Okay. So if you have an annual income of a million rand, you do not qualify for pro bono services at a law clinic, right? It's usually, you know, for a household income of, you know, maybe 100,000 or less. Okay. I forget the figures. But 
I always refer people to uh, law clinics where that vets. I know a lot of the big universities run law clinics staffed by students, but also a supervising lawyer okay. or some of the big law firms then have, you know, uh, law clinics from which people can get legal advice for free. And also they will do like um, seminars. Like I know that there's seminars on, you know, drafting your will mm. and uh, things like that, like practical mm. things. And then I know that there are seminars on also what do you need, you know, to, to start a business? What papers do you need to sure. lodge? And uh, how do you make sure that you comply? And my speciality, unfortunately, is about, you know, what do you need if you're going to do business with the state, right? To make sure that, because if the state puts out a tender, it's got all these requirements. There's mm. a, a thing, an exercise, a tick box, tick, what do you call it? A box ticking exercise yes, that you yeah. need to undertake. Because if your application is even short one thing, you know, that's it. You you out of the race, <laughs> which is know? highly frustrating for an entrepreneur. It's very frustrating. Because, Lord knows, yeah. we just want to get stuck into the actual doing of stuff, mm. as opposed to, you know, all the 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 you know getting stuck in the weeds. I of, think the people that do well are the ones that have a really good governance, um, you know, person within their businesses. I've seen that personally. I mean, my you know one of the first businesses I started was a digital agency, and in the beginning, it was like the wild west. You know, we were doing stuff. We were selling stuff mm. we didn't have any idea of the legal structures of what we were doing you know mm. the employment laws we were making up as we as we went along as we brought new people on and and you know the moment that we got somebody who was administratively minded to mm. assist us and really just kind of clean it up the it actually impacted on our bottom line mm -hmm. so that impact of doing it right is actually it's, it's an really, investment in your company. It's an investment in a company, and it, it really does it does have a positive impact in so mm. many different ways. What, what does transformation mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, having worked at the law firm and at the court, I actually, um, it had me asking that question because I realized that the private sector just hasn't really even started unpacking what it means to transform you know, this country. Do you right? believe we have transformed mm. or we've gone backwards? No, I, I'm not one of those people that feels like nothing has been achieved. I mean, I, I me see, neither. yeah, I, I, there's a lot of empirical evidence around me, including myself, to know that there's been some kind of transformation, but I don't think it's as far as we should be at okay. this age, especially when you look at the JSC listed companies and you see who's still running them and who's still controlling them and who's still profiting from them and how they are structured, then you realize that also, a lot of the stuff from, is superficial. Just from basic terms, how disparate we are and just how wildly fluctuated our circumstances are, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. even from sentiment, you know, we go from World Cup wins and then, you know, all these tragedies in one year. It's just crazy, right? Yeah, so, yeah. It's, so transformation, I mean, I think you had such a beautiful lens at it, yeah. on it in the uh, in so your role. I like hosting um, business people at Constitution Hill to understand what we can learn in terms of transformation from the court itself sure. and the different vernaculars that it speaks you know, when it comes to transformation. And so we host a lot of business people and we use the court as a case study on how change happens, right? Okay. So that's what I would say I do. And um, I remember asking Albi the one time because I was writing a piece on transformation. So uh, Albi said to me, you know, revolution is about changing the regime. But transformation is about changing the heart of a country. Wow. I think we've changed regimes, but we ha I don't think we've changed the heart of the country because I still hear and see things that make me realize that people don't get it. For me, once once you start talking about the heart, 
you know, of a country, when you think of transformation, I think when you think of a heart of, you know, a company and some of the companies that I've worked, you know, at and trying to see if they live up to L.B. Sachs' definition of what transformation is. And as I say, transformation for me is not just a policy. It's a feeling that you create within your private space, mm. which then you hope expands beyond your private space and actually shifts, you know, the mood. I, and I like that. I think I think what you're talking about is, again, this legal framework. And and ultimately within it is the DNA that, that or uh, the heart that sits within. I mean, there's an old Jewish proverb, actually. It's, it's um, guard your heart from, from it. Mm. Uh, is the wellspring of life. And, mm. and you know, a country lives if the heart is beating and the heart is good and healthy. Mm. And I think you, you're seeing the the manifestation of when it's not healthy mm. in, you know, situations like Wasasa and, and all these things oh. where in companies where it's so rotten to the core, you know, it, it and, and that's the model that we have, these ultra successful, very charismatic uh, led companies and organizations that small businesses look up to and say, well, that's where we got to be. And ultimately, we need to change that narrative, right? And that's the thing that I, I'm, I'm sensing that you're saying we need to transform. Yeah, I mean, look at the models in which you build your company around. Like, for instance, if I had to start a law firm today, knowing what I know about how law firms are structured, is that the billable hour is a gift and a curse, and it's more of a curse, right? Mm. But it's almost like we haven't been inventive enough to come up with another way of operating. Mm. And you find yourself then, you know, um, chasing growth and profit, mm. fetishizing growth uh, to the expense of the integrity of your business. I will tell you that with the billable hour, you'll find someone adding an extra five minutes or 10 minutes just to be able to make up the ridiculous target that has been imposed on them, right? So for me, the, what we see in terms of private sector complicity and state capture, right? It makes me ask, what came first? Private sector corruption or public yeah. corruption, right? Yeah. I don't know which one came first. And it makes me think that I hope that what the private sector reflects on after this uh, state capture inquiry is that what are, you know, the the characteristics of your business that make you susceptible to such corruption, right? You know, because employees that um, act in a corrupt manner, some of them do it because they believe that they're doing the company a favor, mm. you know, or they believe that it's survival mode, that if I don't do this, I'm not going to meet my target, I'm going to be fired and all those things. The kind of pressure and the kind of unrealistic models that companies take on that are simply unsustainable lead to the kind of, uh, you know, circumstances that we saw that some of these private companies that were complicit in state capture are going to be paying for for quite some time reputationally especially because you know who's going to go to an auditor that has been uh, stained in this way the yeah, last couple of such, years uh, that's such an amazing perspective Londa I think in terms of how I mean, that it's, it, it leads to this understanding, I guess, of the moral fl- framework and the legal framework being mm. inde- indelibly linked, right? Mm. They need to be working together in order for it to be, to be a healthy business. Mm. What advice are you giving yourself and hopefully <laughs> to the people out there in the audience? To wrap up is, is to say that the Constitution can seem like such an airy-fairy sort of document. You know, it doesn't really have the nuts and bolts that people want. But it's saying that it should be your starting point, understanding how ensuring 
all of us are invested in ensuring that the rules that are prescribed there are actually implemented. Otherwise, we do have this thing of lawlessness and we know what that can mean for the growth of this country, for the growth of your business. And the rule of law is about knowing what the law is, mm. having it written down, having some kind of certainty, having us all be equal before the law and all of that. And once you disrupt that, you almost don't even have a framework from which you can like build your business, right? So it's important to be vested in the political issues of this country because they determine a lot in terms of policies that help young entrepreneurs in terms of investment that comes into this country that drives growths and all of that. So all of it is connected. But from my personal observations is that as I build my own business is that I want to look at how it's structured and the model that I take on, right? And uh, if I do end up starting a legal consultancy, you know, other than the billable hour, what else is out there? Do my research because I see how the billable hour for some people is just not sustainable the way that it's targeted, right? Number two, looking at hierarchy. I think for me, the way that businesses just cut and paste the same sort of hierarchies that they see in other businesses, you know, you may want a devolution of power, right, amongst different people within the company and not have this one person that sort of holds it and then it sort of cascades down. So I think that's like an open, I mean, something that I'm passionate about because I've seen how, you know, hierarchy can can kill a company. So it's unable to perform in the way that you want it to because it's too top heavy. And, you know, I hope to to run a business that is premised on justification. I think if you're unable to justify the decisions that you take as a business in the same way that the court operates in a way that it writes out a judgment as to what it thinks and why and what the decision is, right? I think a lot of people that work at companies, you know, they make decisions and they implement them uh, in very opaque ways, right? Where people sort of don't understand the origins of certain decisions that have been taken and um, they haven't been consulted and all of that. And in constitutionalism, consultation, justification, transparency is, you know, uh, it's a huge thing. And for me, I would say if you build your company, you know, on those values of being transparent, of affording the people that you work with, you know, uh, complete, you know, access to your thinking and being able to justify your decisions and not saying, you know, like Zuma did, you know, so many times during his presidency, just waking up in the middle of the night and firing so-and-so, is that people want to be told why, a particular decision was taken. So I think I want to keep that culture of justification Mm. that I learned from the constitutional court in my own business because I think once people feel like you trust them, you know, in a manner that their voices, you know, matter in terms of weighing in on decisions and all of that, I think you can only uh, build a company that has uh, a strong foundation. And I know those things are more like legal values rather than laws in themselves. But when you look at the Companies Act and all of that and how boards take decisions and all of that, I think it's all geared towards, you know, um, the values that are embodied in the Constitution. I hope people understand also the Constitution has practical tools on how you can... um, you know, operate as a business in this country. For instance, people think of access to information in very like public terms that, you know, you can access government information by using the process that's set out in Section 32. But Section 32 of the Constitution says you can 
get access to information from private companies. So this is the thing that has enabled, you know, uh, a lot of litigation and procurement cases because when your competitor wins, you want to be able to to say, okay, this is what they had in their application and you want to be able to access that information. I think for me, that is... Um, you know, if, you, if you're a small to medium-sized company and you want to think of constitutionalism, access to information is a game changer. It's the thing that allows even so, civil society yeah. to be able to uh, change things because without knowledge, there's no way, you know, you can know for certain where things are going wrong. Mm. And for me, even if you are interested in a certain policy that government has taken or a decision that government has taken that affects your business, Ask for that information. And it's available to you. I think that's also important for, for entrepreneurs and business owners and managers to understand is that you can access that information. And when, when you can't, go to court. And, and I think, you know, back to the sympathies that I have, even for myself as someone who's starting on this journey, is that you can have legal protection. I've seen people with uh, intellectual property rights when it comes to their businesses. They've done everything that they are supposed to do in terms of the law, right? That's one thing. And then you have someone actually take that product of yours despite the fact that you've secured it legally and use it which we mm. see all the time because there's such a you know a power imbalance mm. you know Louis Vuitton can come and take La Duma's uh, idea even though he's trademarked it yeah. and the thing is you have to ask whether entrepreneurs actually have the funds to actually protect themselves legally that's another question securing all your 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 legal documents and making sure everything is in place is one thing and I but said go to it, yeah. law clinics and get free legal advice but going through the actual taxing exercise of actually fighting for your rights is where I see that people are very it's not just money it's also time right yeah yeah time and also it's quite expensive like if you had to undertake a trial you know trying Mm. to protect your intellectual property or whatever it is do you actually have the means? These things can take years. So for me, it's like if you're going to pursue that route and not social media and all of that, make sure it's a matter of principle that you want to create such a precedent that it actually helps you protect yourself from future uh, issues like that happening again because That's a great you point. have a precedent. It does, however, really underpin the importance of doing things right from mm. the start to having those structures, those legal and moral structures in place right from the start, treat mm. people right, do it in an ethical and legal have your paperwork way. have the paperwork because if you don't up. then you're going to lose the trial sure it's look you, you it's going to cost you time and money to mm. embark on that journey but if you do not have that that paperwork in in the beginning you're dead in the water there's no way even with a you know social media backed cause you're you're going to get anywhere mm. um i want to end off just just first of all with my own piece of advice mm. uh, for the audience out there is to go and read the opening statements of the constitution preamble, docu- yes. the preamble i'd encourage everybody to go and read it seek it out and just understand what it actually means because i think it's more than just a document so if you're listening to this, go into Instagram, including underscore society. And we basically look at inclusion and diversity issues that, you know, plague the private sector. And, um, you know, the, it's a primary vehicle, including society, to make a documentary on the history of professional exclusion in this country from job reservations and apartheid and how we still suffer from those kind of patterns today, even though the law has been scaled back. And then trying to see best practices from different companies on how they're trying to build, including companies, right? Luando, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. And really, it's very heartwarming and informative 
also to understand, you know, this this framework that we have at our disposal that's such a, well, it's now been tested, right? And it's come out the other side still intact and still strong and with such amazing individuals who are looking after it. One last thing for Heavy Shifts <laughs> and all the small businesses listening, come to Constitution Hill for your uniquely printed preamble. Oh, there we we'll go. And, and that's we were hoping that the tour guide, the highest paid tour guide in the country will still be there. <laughs> Thank you, Lawanda. It's been a Problem. pleasure. Now I'm sitting with Graham Wilson, who is one of the most innovative minds in South African law today. We're going to lean into some of the more practical lessons about startups, the more salient aspects of setting up a business and the pitfalls that you really should be aware of. Graham Wilson, so good to see you again, sir. Thanks, Fred. Nice to be with you today. You have a reputation in the legal uh, circles in South Africa. You've won a truckload of awards. You are intimately connected to new law and you're doing a lot of innovative work in the, the legal space. I wanted to just start out though and ask you, how, you know, what led you into, into law and particularly with your passion for the SME sector? Fred, yeah, I think I probably decided that I had an inclination for, for law in my last couple of years at high school. So I, I left high school um, I was pretty clear in my mind that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I studied a, a BA as an undergraduate. Sure. Um, and again, following kind of interests for me, I, I majored in, in psychology. Um, and I think it's not a coincidence um, in terms of my interests because there, there actually is quite a lot of psychology in law, um, particularly Absolutely. if you're dealing with, with people. Um, and, and certainly my, my philosophy and approach towards law is, is lawyers are supposed to be helpful um, and actually help solve problems. Um, a lot of law these days is, is seen as being adversarial, people fighting in court. Um, but that's not necessarily the core of what law is about, if you really go back in time. It's lawyers were designed to be helpful. So there's that kind of like, you know, psychology, human interaction, um, legal thread that kind of runs through through me um, and, and my interest. Sure. And then, sorry, just to just to complete, then I, then I obviously went on from that and did a, my, my LLB law degree. Okay. I mean, just taking from that and the psychology of it, as much as you're extremely efficient and effective, you're also altruistic to a degree with the dealings that you have with businesses. And there's a real kind of heart for small business and, and you know, growing businesses. What excites you about law in South Africa with the work that you're doing in particular reference? I think it's an exciting time, I think, to to be a lawyer or to be in business in South Africa. I think yes. our, our economy is changing Um and 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 with that, there there's you know new economy. There's a there's a a, a lot of emphasis on um, entrepreneurial um, related businesses, um, informal businesses, um, less and less of the of the kind of big formal sector companies. Um, the the small to medium sized business is really where the growth is coming in, um, and and for me that that is exciting because we're seeing you know kind of people just getting involved in business and looking at ways to make money um, right from the outset. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that is exciting and encouraging. And, and you know, the, the legal work that, that we do um, with small to medium-sized business, I think, is, is aimed to, to facilitate and, and help that, that whole new kind of economy that, that is growing. And demystify it, right? You work with a number of organizations, just, I suppose, in making law more accessible. Should people be scared of law? If I'm a, 
an entrepreneur, the legal sphere seems to be this dark and murky area. And that's really not the case, right? It it shouldn't be the case. I mean, it, it can be the case. I think, um, you know, law, law has evolved um, and, and gone into different directions. And there's certain areas of law that are very complicated and very technical, very tricky. But if you go back to, the, you know, again, the concept of, of lawyers trying to be helpful um, and actually giving people what they need, um, I, I think if you keep that at the core and try and demystify that and understand what it is that, that people need, um, whether it's individuals, corporations, um, then it can be more simple. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time, lawyers like complicating things for the sake of complication. So they, it's good for business. It's right? good for business. So kind of lawyers speak to lawyers about two clients' problems. Um, but, you know, maybe those clients could just figure it out themselves sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the lawyers are kind of running it into a space that makes sense to them, but actually doesn't make sense from a business perspective. Sure. And so I, I think, as, you know, if, if possible, um, kind of understanding what it is that a client is looking for um, and trying to meet their need and their interests and, and, you know, weaving the law into that to be helpful sure. is really kind of from my philosophical business perspective is what we're trying to achieve. Giving long-winded contracts or contracts that a person says, I don't understand this, doesn't make sense because you're writing that contract for the person. Mm. So you should give them something that they understand and is useful to them. And from a legal perspective, why is that? Is that purely because it is supposedly you know, it sounds better or is there an actual legal function to it? I don't think there's a simple answer to that. Lawyers love precedent. You don't so, want to let all your legal friends down. No, I'm not. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's on to us. If, if, if lawyers love precedent, so they, they take what's been done before and then what they tend to do is say, okay, this has been done before. This has so, worked. So this has worked, but actually we need a little bit more. So the guy's add to it and then the next guy comes along and says okay we've got what we've got we're not going to take any of that away because it's probably there for a reason so we'll just add something more to it so it just becomes more and more and more so you know you read a clause um you know that will say you know three or four words and it'll say well actually maybe we should add this word to it and and things just actually get bigger and bigger and bigger and out of whack or there isn't a clause dealing with this so you add another clause and another clause and and Often that just kind of bulks the thing up. And, you know, you may say, well, every single word is necessary. Every single clause is necessary. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, is it really? If you just say, this is what we're trying to do. Let's use simple language. You, you and I agree on this. Let's put it down in simple language. If we agree, um, then we've got agreement and we can act. So, you know, just to, to, to state that somewhat differently, if, if you write a good contract that, that people are clear on that, we know you and I agree on this and we can just record it in simple terms that I could read it and say back to you exactly what it means. You would read it, say back, say exactly back to me what it means. Then we've got agreement. Then the chance of things going wrong in that agreement are greatly reduced. But if you've got this very long contract that neither you or I know what it actually means, mm. but we've got it, the chance <laughs> of something going wrong in that is much higher it's because we don't high. actually know what it says. Yeah. The legal terminology is just this big amorphous mess in some cases, you know, I suppose then it becomes unintelligible. Yes. However, it can be simpler but simple doesn't mean dumbed down um it can be so more accurate it, it, yeah. exactly it's just it, making it so that people understand so it's not it's not detracting from the weightiness of what's being agreed um or what needs to be done 
it's it's just putting it in terms that the people that are involved in the actual contract understand. From a practical perspective then, starting out, what would you say are the most important aspects of law that an entrepreneur needs to be aware of in terms of setting up their business? Yeah. So I think an, an important starting point is is for people to understand or appreciate that to set up a business in no formality is actually required. Um, you don't need to set up a company. You don't have to do anything. You can just start trading. If you go to a, a wholesaler and buy a whole bunch of packets of sweets and then break them up into smaller packets and sell them on the side of the road, you are in business. You're trading. Um, if you've got a, a skill, you're able to fix PCs or you know, wire a computer or wire a plug point or anything, you can go to someone's house and provide that service and make money um, without actually any formality. You'd be a sole proprietor. You'd be exactly a sole proprietor. So you can do that without any formality. That would be your kind of starting level, the starting tier of business. Correct. And many businesses will, will run like that all through their life. Often it is just, you know, uh, Joe and his Bucky that go around doing the service sure. and, and they could run fairly big businesses. They could employ people, um, you know, buy, buy more equipment, buy infrastructure, all that kind of stuff, just as Joe. So, so no formality is required. The difficulty with that is there is no difference from a legal perspective with, with Joe and his business. So if something was to go wrong within Joe's business, for example, um, there was a death or an injury or something that, that, that he caused a, a damage or a loss to his client, and that client looked to recover from Joe, all the assets of Joe in his personal capacity would be up for grabs or on the line. Gotcha. So his own house, his own car, etc. because Joe is the sole proprietor, the trader himself, and we've got no separate legal entity. Gotcha. So, so that's where creating a, a separate legal entity, um, which in South Africa would, would typically be a company, um, gives you that, that difference. Um, so Joe could own his house and his car and have all his assets um, as Joe in his personal capacity. And then separate to that, he could have Joe's trading um, in which he's running his business gotcha. um, and, you know, fixing computers or whatever it is that that, that Joe does. Um, and in that way, he's limited his liability to the liability of that business, not to Joe in his personal and capacity. And what, what, what is the term for that structure? So, I mean, that, that's typically creating a new legal entity. So your, your structure in South Africa these days would be a company. So you would incorporate a company. Um, it's a fairly straightforward process. I think towards the back end of last year, um, the Department of Trade and Industry said they wanted a company to be able to be set up within a day. Um, to my knowledge, it's not quite that quick yet, but it, it's a matter of days. Okay. Um, and most of it can be done online, um, on the DTI website, on the SIPSI website. Um, so it's not, it's not an overly complicated process. So you can be up and running, have your business incorporated, um, within a matter of, of days or weeks. Okay. So now let's, let's say Gloria now wants to join Joe and, um, in this company. So what, how would that be set up then? What are the, the kind of as, as a, as a, as a, as a partner as such as a, yeah. So a, a, a company, typically has shares. So if, if using the example that we've created, um, if, if Joe was the sole shareholder, he would own all the shares in the business. If Gloria wanted to join as such, um, then she would need to be allocated shares. 
Um, so that could that could happen either with with Gloria buying in, so the business may have a value, and she's now buying a piece of that that business, and sure. and in exchange for that, getting shares. Um, it's not uncommon, particularly in the small business and entrepreneurial space, space for people to actually provide a service in order to get the, the equity or the share. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's often referred to as, as sweat equity, um, where you're basically putting your back into the business. Um, and as part of that, you would get a return for your investment in the, in the, in the form of shares in that, in that company. Sure. Um, and then, then as a shareholder, you, you get to benefit from the risk and reward in the business. So if things go up, your shares, your business value goes up and hopefully your share then, um, goes uh, goes up as well sure um but if if things go wrong and the business folds and you'd bought in or you'd put your sweat equity in then that effort or that cash has been lost okay and and if we just go another layer up i mean what what other entities could you form in the south african space it's not it's not uncommon um to to form partnerships as well so uh, again um a partnership would just be um you know two or meet more people getting together in business okay. um but it's it's almost like a like the collectivism of a sole proprietor you're just not doing things collectively okay. um and you can ring fence your liability um within a partnership to the assets of that partnership but much like um a sole proprietor you you can be each of the partners can be held jointly and severally liable for for the actions of that partnership so it it doesn't create the 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 protection um that a, a incorporating a company and having having separate shareholding does okay let's just say joe and, and gloria are going into business together from the outset and they they want to protect each other from each other and you know start putting together a, a set of legal prerequisites, I guess, that would protect them in, in various different ways. Can you talk to some of those those legal requirements that you would advise startup entrepreneurs who are building a new business and, and what they should do? So, so typically the, the relationship between shareholders um, is, is governed by a shareholders agreement um, or in the, in the more modern company structure, it can all be dealt with in what's called the memorandum of incorporation or the MOI. Yeah. So, so that document pretty much sets out the, the relationship between Gloria and Joe, how are they going to deal with each other in regard to the operation of that business? Um, it's an important document particularly in the in the startup space because people can get into business together with what they believe to be a very common understanding um, of what they're trying to achieve and and where they're going to go but things change over time Um, and if you haven't kind of planned for or have the process in place to deal with that change then things can often go wrong so by way of example Gloria and Joe may start a business um, and they both agree that they're going to put 100,000 in to fund the business. Um, but in five years' time, they need another capital injection into that business to perhaps take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. At that point, Joe's got 100,000 that he's able to put into the business. Gloria says, well, my circumstances have changed completely. My kids are now at school. Um, I just don't have the 100,000. You need some kind of agreement or document to say in these instances, when these things happen, this is how we'll deal with it. So, for example, 
in, you may have a document that says in those instances, Joe will put in his 100,000 rand, but Gloria then needs to dilute her shareholding um, because her, her equity or her stake in the business is now disproportionate or less to what it was at the beginning because she hasn't continued to contribute. Sure. Now, if you don't have a, a document from the outset that kind of sets the parameters for that agreement, then the chance of, of butting heads or things going wrong exists. You know, with the incorporation of the business and you've got all the, the contracts in place, Joe and Gloria have to expand their team somewhat. Uh, what do they need to do from, from a, a legal standpoint in hiring and, and, uh, and, and building that team? Fred, so again, in, in our experience from in, in dealing with small to medium-sized businesses, the, the, the kind of hiring and firing as such of, of employees is probably one of the big sticking points sure. because our, our labor laws are fairly regulated and they tend to work on um, both, su- both substance and, and form. So things have to be done from a procedurally correct way. Um, and if you don't, no, no matter if, if the reason for doing something is right, if you haven't followed the process correctly, the employer could still be in the wrong. Okay. So uh, employing people um, is, is, is important. Understanding what it is that you're doing and the nature of the engagement. Um, so you're, you know, there's a, c- a couple of ways of doing things. You could have a full-time employee um, who comes in, you know, nine to five and does work for you. Um, you could have a part-time employee who kind of comes in as and when work is needed. Um, you could have an intermittent employee that comes in just when the work is needed. So things like seasonal workers, it's, mm-hmm. it's only a picking season, et cetera. Um, and then outside, all of those are employment related, um, kind of categories. Outside of that, you have people who would actually just deliver a service to you that aren't in fact employees. So they may just produce an outcome or give you a service or a deliverable, um, like perhaps setting up your IT infrastructure. They'll come in, do that on an independent basis and leave. They're not employed by you as such. They just provide a service. Um, and understanding the, the kind of nuances and who's doing what and kind of what category they they fit into and then how they're treated mm. um, and the ways in which those contracts can be terminated is is very important and something that a lot of, of small to medium-sized businesses actually get wrong. Because, the, I mean, the outcome of doing it wrong is is really you're going to end up in court and you're going to end up, at, well, you're going to end up at the CCMA your entire life and, and you're just going to have challenges, right? Correct. And, and that's obviously something you want to avoid. Really just get your ducks in a row and get the paperwork done. Get both parties to agree upon it and then sign it. Absolutely. That would, that would be my advice. And it's, it's just for the sake of making sure, uh, you know, literally people are on the same page. Sure. Um, you know, if, if you're kind of having to pull things, well, in this email you said and I said and in this WhatsApp and, and you're stringing it together, mm. it absolutely is doable. But being on the same page literally sometimes means being on the same page. Yeah, for sure. Throughout your business, not just in the legal perspective, clear communication, just understanding what everybody is really doing and, and agreeing upon it, right? Yes. So what you're saying is don't take shortcuts. And the reality is so many people do because they think it's a mission. But the truth is if you have those systems in place right from the start and preferably somebody to help you out with it, such as yourself, I think it's it becomes really easy, and I, I mean I know that from experience. Yeah, it 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 is because you, you know if you if you're trying to cut the corner, it you know it can it can end up biting the bum. So the whole employment side of a business can often be a uh, be problematic, both in the engaging people and then and then the 
the the opposite of that is kind of like exiting people. Um, so things go wrong. You you know you employ people, you engage people, they don't deliver. And again, your you know your mindset could often be well, the person hasn't delivered, so it's over. Um, thank you very much. Leave. Um, but again, our our employment law um, is regulated and there's a process. So there are processes that you need to follow. That's not to say that the person who's who's been dishonest or hasn't delivered can't be terminated. Absolutely, they can. Um, but it, it it can't be as simple as saying you 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 stole, you're fired, or you know you didn't do a good work, you're out of here. Um, there is a process that needs to be followed, and people get that wrong because often the the employer would feel somewhat aggrieved that this person hasn't done what they should have, so mm-hmm. they must go, um, which may be a very normal and 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 rational emotional feeling, um, but there is still a process that needs to be followed. Um, sure, and, particularly if the, there's a particularly heinous transgression of some sort you don't want to go through counseling and you know the the back and forth conversations yep. but I, I, i'm guessing you you kind of you kind of have to right co- correct and people people you know flounder on that guy you know you'll see a, an employee stealing a laptop and kind of say like give me the laptop back you're fired i never want to see you again um and you know that may seem to the business owner completely logical because that person was just about to steal and justified um, and that's not to say it it isn't justified but a process needs to be followed um you know in order to in order to get their due due process, mm-hmm. um, and and em, employers often often get that. What's wrong. the consequence of not doing that process? So, I mean, the employee then in those instances would actually have a, have a claim against the the employer, and the the CCMA is your um, the right recourse. So an employee would go to the um, to the CCMA. Most of the CCMA cases don't require legal representation. Most of it can be quite quick. Um, so, so an employer that gets that wrong can find themselves in the in the CCMA um, within within a matter of weeks, mm. um, depending on on which CCMA offer it, office it is, etc. But it, it can be fairly quick, um, and and an award can be made against the the, the employer. Um, it uh, for up to a year's salary, and in certain instances too. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the accessibility of all these contractual agreements and documents, and and so on? Yeah, so I mean, I think for most people, their first port of call is going to be hit Google and see what pops up. Um, and there's a lot of stuff there that, that is really helpful um, and that that could be used. Um, from In terms of legal documents, there's, there's a lot of templates that are available on the internet. Um, a lot of them are free. Um, there are a lot of them that will be kind of a nominal fee that needs to be paid in order to download that template and then perhaps customize it or, or tweak it. Um, and, and I really um, kind of have think that's that's a good starting point yeah um rather rather have that than nothing but then you you know you you need to understand as well what it is that you're doing and is that template going to be sufficient or are you going to need something more complicated because of your specific needs because of the scale of the business because of the nature of what you're supplying use your common sense right and i think preemptively as well as retroactively is just use your common sense on these things because i think a lot of that stuff just by examining the 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 situations the the actual particulars of the agreement as well as the documents themselves and the requirements thereof you know you can pretty much unpick it if yeah. you've if you've got the smarts to start a business you can pretty much figure that stuff out your intuition's going to tell you i need something more um and and i think then you know you're a business guy, you figured out a whole lot of stuff, you're probably, you know, selling a few products or you've got something good you're doing, 
just apply your brain to those kind of things and say, wait a minute, I, I need a bit of a bit of help here. Sure. In terms of selling your business, wh- what would you advise people to look out for uh, from a legal standpoint? So if, if we think of Joe and Gloria's scenario where they, they started their, their business together and perhaps they were, you know, 50-50 shareholders, they each put in their 100,000 and they've, they've progressed things and, and they're, now, they're now looking to exit. Their, their ability to exit, a lot of that will depend on the way that, in which they've conducted themselves and what they've done from a business perspective all the way through. Because the purchaser who's now coming to have a look at their business, they're going to buy their shares. So they're going to take over from, from Gloria and, and Joe. And the more attractive that package looks, the, chance, the, the prospects of sale, the pro- prospects of a good buyer, the prospects of a higher purchase price are good. So if, for example, Gloria and Joe were not keeping proper records, um, didn't have proper bank accounts, their own bank accounts and the business bank accounts were interspersed, um, they were running a whole lot of personal expenses out of the business, etc. When someone's coming to have a look at that saying, what am I buying here? Mm. Because there's there's a whole lot of mess and I just don't see my value. Um, so running that business in a in a in a fairly structured manner um, is I think is important. That so that would be from a, an accounting perspective. Get your, get your house in order, yeah. Keep your keep your house in order. I think not get, because mm. often that happens with entrepreneurs, they have to try and retrofit and tidy up. If right from the outset, you know, you're running some kind of structure, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet of income and expenses, um, you know, whether you're getting some some online software to help you or whatever, but at least there's structure so that objectively, if someone looks at it down the line, they can say, I see what you've been doing. This makes sense. I can make sense of this. I can see what the in, your income is. I can see what your out, your output is and, and it can make sense of it. So I think running the business in, a, in an orderly fashion um, is important from an accounting perspective and then from a legal perspective perspective as well. Are there any things that really stand out uh, that that you can share with our audience and uh, and and share of your wisdom? Fred, you know, I, th- I think um, in my life and certainly legal career and, and the whipping the cat business, I, I think to kind of pick up on a, on a single maxim or, or a single thing is always almost impossible. There's nothing <laughs> that runs through. But Every what, single but, day. But what I, what I would say is it, it's almost like more lack of, of a magpie where we kind of go and find these like little nuggets all over the place. Sure. Um, and together they're all kind of put together and you've got something that's, that's kind of of substance and, and, and value and worth. Um, and, and it's more of the sum of the parts, I think, um, little bits and bobs rather than a, than a single kind of so keeping, key phrase. So keep being curious, in other words, just curious about all the learnings that you get on a day-to-day basis. I actually agree with you in that, in that every day is just learning, a learning experience, right? Correct, correct. So I'll, I'll, I'll put keeping curious in my magpie bag. <laughs> <laughs> but Graham, thank you. And well done on all the success with whipping the cat. Thank you for shaking the tree with, uh, in the, within the legal fraternity and uh, within all the, the, the legal circles. And, uh, and just please continue all the great work that you're doing. Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media, tag at discovery underscore SA. Use the hashtag DSY Healthy Business. And please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more shows on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. 
creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance.